Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblana Chakraborty. And when you think about old Hollywood and the most beautiful actresses of all time, there are probably a lot of well-known names that immediately come to mind. For example, maybe Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor, Grace Kelly... Audrey Hepburn is my personal favorite. I don't yeah, know if you I have just one. saw Roman Holiday. A great one. And so pretty in that. It's, it's like the first thing you notice. But it was actually an actress who's probably lesser known today, Hedy Lamar, who was billed as the most beautiful girl in the world during the 1930s. In the introduction to Stephen Michael Shear's recent biography, Beautiful, The Life of Hedy Lamar, There's a description of the author's mother's experience seeing Lamar's first American film, which was Algiers, came out in 1938. And she saw it in a theater in Illinois, and she described the experience of the first moment in the movie when Lamar kind of steps out of the shadows and you see her face for the first time. And the author's mother says that the whole audience just gasped at her beauty. It was an audible experience. And I don't know if many of us have had an experience like that in a movie theater. No, a a uniform gasp like that. But even though Lamar's star may have faded a bit since then, many people realized in the late 1990s, just a few years before her death, that she was probably a lot more than just a pretty face. Yeah, definitely. It came to light at that time that many years ago, she actually invented something called spread spectrum technology, which was used by the military and has become a component of modern mobile phone technology. So definitely relevant to what we do every day. But what we want to look at in this episode is... How did a Hollywood starlet pull off a contribution of this caliber in the first place? And why? And, of course, take a look at her glamorous, sort of bizarre life. She led a very fascinating life, and we can't even begin to touch on all of the details of it here. Um, Again, the sheer biography that I mentioned, it actually came out last year along with another biography. And I would definitely recommend picking that up if you find her life of interest at all, because it is fascinating. Yeah, but we'll give you, we'll give you the basics. We'll give you the basics. We'll, we'll take you back to the beginning like we usually do and kind of, I guess, show you how the seeds of this innovation began. So Hedy Lamar was born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler on November 9th, 1914 in Vienna, Austria. And she couldn't say Hedwig, so she called herself Hedy, which was actually pronounced Haiti over there. Uh, we're going to go with the more... Anglicized. Yeah, the anglicized, better known version of her name, Hedy. Uh, but that little nickname stuck. And I say she's kind of lucky for that. Um, she had a nice, a nice enough childhood. Definitely. Her family was pretty well-to-do. They weren't extremely super wealthy, but they were well-off. Her dad, Emil, was a prominent Jewish banker, and her mother, Gertrude, was a talented pianist. Gertrude had given up her dreams of having a career in music when she got married, and she got pregnant very quickly after that, but she still helped to instill a love of the arts in Hetty, who learned to dance and play the piano from a very young age. 
And because she was an only child, too, Hetty grows up basically like this little princess. And her parents were out socializing quite a bit, but her dad really doted on her when he was around and played make-believe with her, told her stories. And according to Shearer, he would also spend hours explaining how things worked to her, everything from, quote, printing presses to streetcars. Uh that's that's the first thing that sort of stands out in this early biography, this careful attention to detail. Yep, her curiosity is sparked at this point. But her first love, even from a young age, is acting. Her parents, however, were dead set against it. They did not want her to be an actress. So she had to actually trick her mom into signing a slip and cut school to get her first movie job as a script runner for Sasha Film Studio in Vienna. And it was through this connection that she picked up her first bit part as an extra in the film Geld auf der Strasse, which translates to Money in the Street. And it was, I think, originally a silent film, but they added sound into it later. Yeah. So she was just, a, I think, a person sitting on a stool or something like that in that movie. But a start nonetheless. And at that point, she realized that she if she was going to be a serious actress, she needed to learn a little bit more about her craft. So she enrolled at the legendary theatrical producer Max Reinhardt's prestigious Berlin-based drama school in about 1930. And initially, she got some bit parts in Reinhardt's shows and followed him to Vienna and started to take on larger roles. And it was he who told the press, quote, Hetty Kiesler is the most beautiful girl in the world. So sort of making that reputation for her early on. But it wasn't until 1932 that she got her really big break in a Czech film called Ecstasy. And this is something that she's still famous for because it was very controversial at the time for the fact that she appeared nude in it. Um, this was very scandalous, especially it would have been very scandalous to, say, an American because Hollywood was comparatively very conservative at the time. So... The fact that she is naked in it and there's also a very racy sex scene it kind of put her on the map in a lot of ways, sometimes not necessarily good ways, but there it was. So at this point, her star is definitely on the rise. But the next step she takes in her personal life, which is marriage, kind of puts her acting career on the back burner for a little while. Yeah, she had a reputation for... Maybe not picking the best of guys. And she ended up getting married six times. But her first marriage is the one we're going to focus on. It's very significant because it probably planted the seed for her eventual invention. So she married this millionaire arms dealer named Fritz Mondel in 1933. And at first, the two were, as you put it earlier, they're just kind of playing house with each other. Yeah, they're wealthy, as we mentioned. She, He's just buying jewels for her, and she's traveling on his arm, on his work trips, and everywhere that he goes. And she's sort of happy because of this, but that doesn't last. Mondel was really controlling. He kept her from acting and even tried to buy up all the copies of Ecstasy in existence because he was so jealous about it after he saw it. He paid figures like up to $60,000 per copy to get all of these. And rumor has it that even Mussolini had a copy of Ecstasy, but he refused to sell it to Mondel for any price that he would pay. Yeah, don't marry starlets if you don't like their movies. Yeah, it's going to be millionaire arms dealers. <laughs> you tell them, Sarah. <laughs> 
But Hetty really lost all her respect for Mondel when she found out that he was making arms agreements with the Nazis. And this seemed um, especially wrong to her. It's, it's not just she that's of Jewish heritage, but Mondel was himself of Jewish heritage. And according to Shearer, he had become an honorary Aryan, which was a special status created for Jewish people who served Hitler personally. It seemed like the ultimate betrayal to Hetty. Absolutely. And toward the end of their marriage, she was very displeased with him and was practically a prisoner in her own home. Mondel was afraid that she would flee, so he made the servants watch her and she couldn't leave. But actually him forcing her to attend these meetings with technicians and his munitions business partners while they were married is part of how she got the idea and the knowledge to help create spread spectrum technology. Yeah, but... To do anything with all this knowledge she had, she had to get away from her husband. But what she really wanted to do was get back into acting at that time. So she got a maid to help her escape from Mondel's house. And she was able to meet up with Hollywood producer Louis B. Meyer, who she had met previously through Reinhardt. And she got signed to MGM Studios. It wasn't a great deal, but she was signed at least and back on track with her career. And so in 1937, she was on her way to the States, where she became known as Hedy Lamar for the first time. Yeah, and she did a few Hollywood movies that did reasonably well at the box office. Algiers, 1938, which you mentioned earlier. H.M. Pullman Esquire, 1941. Tortilla Flat, 1942. White Cargo, also in 1942. The most commercially successful film she was in, though, was Samson and Delilah in 1949. Um But even though, you know, this is a certain amount of success, she probably never reached her full potential as a Hollywood glamorous actress. Right. I think most people think that she probably doesn't get the credit that she deserves. And she had a tough time coming in. And there were three possible reasons for that. One was that when she initially came to the U.S., language, the language barrier and the accent, they were both problems for her when it came to certain roles. It's been said that she often didn't know what she was saying, and she recited her lines phonetically. So in her earliest films, that would, films, be, an issue, that would be really tough. And her beauty was one of her greatest assets. But Meyer and MGM really didn't know what to do with her. By most accounts, they saw her as a casting challenge, which seems so strange considering that she was so beautiful and so marketable. But they had to end up putting her mostly in eye candy type of roles rather than really substantive ones because they thought that she was basically too beautiful to be playing someone who was normal. She couldn't be a real person. Yeah, she couldn't be a department store clerk or someone who was serving you coffee because she was just so gorgeous they thought that no one would believe it. Yeah, and it wasn't just the bosses who saw her beauty as a hindrance. She herself viewed her beauty as a weakness. She's quoted as saying, My face has been my misfortune, a mask I cannot remove. I must live with it. I curse it. Yeah, I never thought I'd feel sorry for someone who's so gorgeous, but... That sounds awful. And she really thought that a girl should have brains as well as a body. And she wanted people to know her for that. Um, one of her role models I read somewhere was Mata Hari. One of, she really admired Mata Hari, who was a World War One spy. Admired her because she was, Mata Hari was both a military expert and a seductress. So she used the mind-body connection. 
Yeah, and Hedy Lamarr also had just some plain bad luck or maybe bad choices with her film roles. She had an opportunity for some to star in some really memorable films. The main one is the lead in Casablanca. Um, either she turns it down or MGM wouldn't loan her out, but she doesn't take the role. I mean, that's... <laughs> you almost think her career could have been entirely different if she had taken that role, but... I guess I guess you never know. Maybe Casablanca just would have been entirely different bombed. and not as memorable. But still, that, that looks like a, one to regret. Well, Lamar did finally get the chance to put her brains to work a little bit more when she met avant-garde pianist and composer George Antheil at a Hollywood dinner party in 1941. Now, Antheil was known for his hit Ballet Mechanique, a music piece that was intended to be performed by several synchronized player pianos. He also shared Lamar's hatred of the Nazis. And they started chatting about World War II, which had just begun at that time in Europe. And Lamar shared with him her idea for a problem with torpedo control that she'd seen Mondel struggle with. She proposed creating a system in which the torpedo and the controller were constantly switching frequencies so that the enemy couldn't intercept or jam the signal. Yeah, which is a pretty intense conversation to be having at this Hollywood dinner party. Definitely <laughs> um, heavy dinner conversation. But Aunt Hale was intrigued with this concept, and they met many times after that to refine this frequency hopping technique that she had proposed and apply the concepts of from his work, from his player piano work and sound synchronization to to what she had suggested. And so before we go any further, because this all gets pretty technical, and um, if you're like me, you need a little simplification of it. So just a little explanation of frequency hopping. And this is from a Georgia Tech engineering professor, Ian Akildes, quoted in The Atlantic. And sorry, Ian, if we have mispronounced your name, because it's a tough one. He says, suppose you're sending something on channel 5. When an intruder finds out that you're sending the entire information on channel 5, then he or she can take everything you're sending off channel 5 and reconstruct it. But when you hop around, the intruder cannot capture this hopping, and he cannot reconstruct the information. So from a security perspective, it's perfect. Yeah, and the way that Lamar and Antiel figured out this system, the way they conceptualized it, involved paper rolls that were perforated with a random pattern to delineate the frequency path. So rolls with the same pattern would be installed in the transmitter and in the receiver. And then just like a conventional player piano, there would be 88 rolls of perforations for 88 keys. And this system allowed for the use of 88 different frequencies that could be changed at different intervals so they couldn't be intercepted. So everything was on the move constantly. Yep, and it was all radio controlled. So they filed for and they received a patent for the system, which they called Secret Communication System. But the Navy basically, they weren't into this idea at all. So the patent lay dormant basically after that for several years until the 1950s. And that was after the invention of the transistor. And others began to experiment with the concepts that basically Lamar had laid out in the patent, but they replaced the paper rolls with a transistor-based digital system. So there were all these subsequent patents on frequency hopping, but they did refer to the Lamar Antiel one as the generic patent, even though, unfortunately, it had since expired. 
And we see the applications of their research all over the place after that. By 1962, the military was using the same principles that Lamar and Aunt Heil had used for secure communications. For example, I think they used it during the Cuban Missile Crisis that was mentioned. And now frequency hopping is known as spread spectrum technology, as we mentioned before. And it's used in everything from cell phones to wireless networking systems. For example, CDMA cell phone networks like Sprint and Verizon use them. So we're going to have to go back through the tech stuff archives to see if we can find anything more Unspread about... spectrum. Yeah, the, the current uses of, of this glamorous starlet's technology. Definitely. As Sarah mentioned, Lamar and Aunt Hiles' original patent expired, and they never made a dime off of this, which is kind of sad. Yeah, no money, no recognition. Until later. Much later recognition. Much later. Not too long after creating her invention, which didn't go anywhere at the time that they actually created it, Lamar's Hollywood career took kind of a downward turn. She sort of flamed out at that point soon after that. She left MGM of her own volition in 1946, Her last big hit was Samson and Delilah in 1949. She does movies after that, but that was kind of her big role that she's remembered for. She retires from acting entirely in 1958. And after retiring, she moved to Florida and lived out the rest of her days there. But she keeps a lot of drama in her life, even though she's retired from the movies. As we mentioned, six husbands divorced six times. Three kids, two biological, one adopted, who she later disowns. Uh, she's arrested twice for shoplifting, once in 1966, once in 1991. Both times the charges don't stick. Yeah, she was cleared. <laughs> and then she gets into it with a lot of people. She has a strange love for litigation in her later life. Collaborators on her 1966 autobiography, Ecstasy and Me, she sues them for misrepresentation. Um, director Mel Brooks, many people I'm sure have seen the film Blazing Saddles. It's a Western spoof, and there's a character in that movie called Headley Lamar, and they sort of turn that name into a prank throughout the film. And it's, it's a very funny film, but apparently Lamar did not find it to be very funny. So she sued him for that, and they settled out of court. But despite all this drama, she's finally recognized for her invention in 1997 when she receives a Pioneer Award from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And she also gets some other recognition from other professional engineering groups as well. But she wasn't too impressed by this attention, I don't think. Her only comment on being honored was, it's about time. So sassy to the end, Hedy Lamar. So Hedy Lamar died in 2000, and people close to her say that she continued to make little inventions throughout her life, including a pocket for tissue or Kleenex boxes where you could put your used tissues. Um, none of these little inventions really took off, and certainly not to the extent of her most famous invention. She can still kind of be an inspiration to future inventors. The Boeing Corporation actually launched a series of ads in 2003 that featured Lamar's image as a woman of science. And the the title for the ad campaign was, Don't Let History Happen Without You. And we can only assume they waited until after her death for fear of lawsuits. <laughs> so true. 
So that's all we have for today. But as I mentioned earlier, there's plenty to say about Hedy Lamar and plenty of things that we didn't get to cover today, both from her later life and from the early years. So if you have anything that you want to add or anything you want to ask, please feel free to email us. Our email is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Or you can look us up on Twitter at Mist in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn any more about cell phone technology, where this invention eventually wound up, we have lots of articles on the subject. You can go to our homepage and search cell phone technology. That's at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.